And so I am ending this long running saga. I am cancelling the rest of the HS2 project. Welcome to The Jolt. It's Friday the 6th of October and I'm Sam Morgan, your host. You'll have just heard in the intro how UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak confirmed that the high-speed rail project between London and Manchester will only go as far as Birmingham, more than halving the total distance. This appears to be the latest example of the British government backtracking on commitments that are meant to help the UK go green at an even quicker pace. But is it that clear-cut a case? We'll get into it later in the episode. First up, let's take a look at some of the climate and energy stories making headlines around the world. Europe took the first step towards being a HFC-free continent yesterday when EU negotiators agreed on a new regulation that will gradually phase out the climate bash in refrigerants. Fluorinated gases, or F-gases, are found in fridges, air conditioners, heat pumps, electricity grids and many other applications, and can have a severe environmental impact if they escape into the atmosphere. The new rules will phase out most harmful F-gases by 2050, promoting the use of sustainable alternatives. According to NGO EEB, nearly 2.5% of the EU's total greenhouse gas emissions will be spared by 2050, thanks to the new rules. Uh, that's equal to the aviation sector's current output. European Heat Pump Association praised the new rules, saying that they will help make their appliances cleaner, but warned that it risks a slowdown in production, meaning the EU should step in to help the industry compete by addressing the use of gas boilers in homes. Pope Francis has warned that the world may be nearing a breaking point thanks to climate change. In a major new addition to an already strongly worded statement on the environment that was published to much fanfare in 2015, the pontiff writes that some of climate breakdown's damage may already be irreversible, as well as criticising climate deniers and irresponsible lifestyles. He also calls for a new governance model to replace the current version and make wider-reaching decisions. Francis ends his statement with a direct call to world leaders. To the powerful, I can only repeat this question. What would induce anyone at this stage to hold on to power, only to be remembered for their inability to take action when it was urgent and necessary to do so? Strong words there from the leader of the Catholic Church. Will they be heeded? Uh, COP28 kicks off November the 30th in Dubai. The full apostolic exhortation is linked in the show notes if you'd like to read it in full. India's head of state, President Drupadi Murmu, told power sector officials yesterday that energy efficiency and renewables are the main ways India will achieve its net zero target. I urge you to focus on increasing energy efficiency, which will make it easier to achieve climate-related goals, the president said in an address, put into shame, I might argue, uh, some other world leaders who made little to no mention of energy savings during the recent fossil energy price crisis. India, committed in 2021 to a net zero target for 2070, which is admittedly uh, two decades later than most other major nations. On Wednesday, the jolt brought you news of how the EU's new climate chief just about managed to convince lawmakers to give him the job. Part of Wapika Herkstra's success was down to the fact that he committed orally and in writing to championing an EU-wide emissions reduction target of at least 90% by 2040. New analysis by the London Stock Exchange Group shows that if the benchmark is put in place, 
Emissions trading system permits would top 400 euros per tonne. The market is currently trading around the 80 euro mark after a long period of flirting with 100 euros. More than quadrupling the price to pollute would naturally have a massive impact on decarbonisation and green technologies would easily become the cheapest investment option by far for most sectors covered by the ETS. That's it for the news. Now let's get into the story of the moment. The United Kingdom is an odd place in many ways, but particularly when it comes to climate. I'm allowed to criticise, given that I hail from a small, especially beautiful part of it. But has Britain backtracked on climate because of recent changes of policy, or is the ship still heading in the right direction? Let's dive in. On the one hand, the UK is an example of a developed, industrialised country that for the most part has successfully decoupled growth, GDP, from emissions. One goes up while the other steadily goes down. Per capita emissions have been falling since the 1990s, and aside from a couple of blips, overall emissions have been trending downwards since the 2000s. But, on the other hand, the UK seems determined to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Early success in the renewable energy industry has somewhat stalled thanks to a de facto ban on onshore wind in England, lack of investments in boosting grid capacity, and a failure to pump money into the sector while cash was cheap and interest rates were low. Gains and progress have of course been made, but for a very windy little group of islands inhabited by a public that largely supports clean energy, nature, and the green transition, you are often left thinking, what could have been? Recent plans to open up more exploration for oil and gas in the North Sea, and slow progress on, for example, heat pump rollout, led the influential Committee on Climate Change to say that it's markedly less confident that long-term goals can now be met. Here's what long-term chairman Lord Deben had to say about it back in June. The failure to act decisively over the past year in response to the energy crisis means that the UK has lost the clear global leadership it once held. Transport is by far the biggest contributor to emissions, outstripping power generation and the building sector by some margin. And this week, the UK Conservative government struck a blow against efforts to do something about that by cancelling part of a high-speed railway project between the south and north of England. HS2 is the ultimate example of the old consensus. The result is a project whose costs have more than doubled, which has been repeatedly delayed, and it is not scheduled to reach here in Manchester for almost two decades, and for which the economic case has massively been weakened with the changes to business travel post-Covid. That was Prime Minister Rishi Sunak confirming his government's plans during the Conservative Party conference, held ironically enough in Manchester, the very city that will now not benefit from the project. As well as significantly reducing passenger travel times, High Speed 2, or HS2, will provide another welcome boost to the railway network. It promises to free up rail capacity across the country, meaning more cargo can go by rail. One freight train, for example, can take around 40 trucks off the roads, so adding one or two extra trains per hour soon means that thousands of polluting trucks no longer have to haul cargo up and down the country. That frees up road capacity, so with clever planning, more public transport can be offered, and does less damage to the asphalt, potentially addressing the scourge of British communities everywhere, the dreaded pothole. In mainland Europe, high-speed rail is seen as a natural competitor for short-haul flights. France has banned certain routes if they are served by rail. 
Italy's domestic market has shrunk since high speed took off, and there are hopes that Spain's network will start making headway now that the routes have been opened up to competition. In the UK example, as far as aviation goes, the planned rail line's impact on domestic flights would only be modest, in its early stages at least, as there are few direct flights between London, Birmingham and Manchester, something like 11 per week. Those are the cities that would be served by HS2. But, thinking long term, future expansion of that high-speed line, currently unlikely but governments come and go, priorities change, uh, could make a dent if it significantly cut journey times between Scotland and the south of England. The majority of inland flights are, after all, between London, Edinburgh and Glasgow. Extra capacity means more services, well-managed operators and competition keeps prices competitive. It's all rather easy, on paper at least. You only have to look at the success of Eurostar, the cross-channel rail service, which uses the only other bit of high-speed line in the UK, and its absolute decimation of cross-channel flights between London and Paris since it launched in the mid-90s. Uh, then you see the potential. So for a country that claims to have invented rail travel, and exported it to the rest of the world, the UK is not exactly covering itself in glory with this latest development. Uh, one of the most effective ways to decarbonise a difficult to decarbonise sector is suffering from a lack of attention. The UK's best efforts to rule itself out of the running to be crowned a global climate champion were also on show back in September when Rishi Sunak also announced more tweaks to policies meant to help achieve the country's legally enshrined 2050 net zero target. Plans to make homeowners replace inefficient and polluting gas boilers were pushed back, while a landmark internal combustion engine sales ban, which would affect new vehicles, was delayed from 2030 to 2035. This was one of the areas where the UK was outstripping the EU, as the union could only compromise on a 2035 date. That was the meat of the net zero backtrack, as critics began calling it. The smoke and mirrors, though, included a reversal of taxes on meat and flying, although fact-checkers have quickly shown that the government never intended to introduce those anyway. So is it all gloom and doom? Not quite. There is progress amid the chaos. That de facto onshore wind farm ban that I mentioned up top of the segment, which was essentially caused by planning restrictions that meant any proposal could be nixed by local councils if just one objection was lodged, uh, has been amended. The rules were changed in September, meaning the cheapest form of renewable energy can now be rolled out more easily. Some restrictions remain, but the door is no longer shut to developers. On transport, the ICE ban may have been delayed, but the government did publish its new zero emission vehicle mandate targets, which will incrementally govern what percentage of cars must be zero emission. I asked Johan Beckford of the Green Alliance whether the ZEV mandate will mitigate somewhat the ICE deadline delay. I guess the, like, the short answer to the question is yes, it sort of goes some way to mitigating it. But I mean, I think it's worth sort of reflecting on the ICE announcement initially. So, I mean, the problem that I saw from the internal combustion engine phase-out change really was about it sending the wrong signal to the market. So we had Ford coming out, we had the charging industry coming out and really making, really showing that this was a bit a problematic announcement because it kind of sent that signal that we might be going slow or even making an about turn on net zero, which is exactly the opposite of what we need to be doing. But I think what isn't necessarily reflected in the debate is actually that that was always going to be around a much smaller proportion of vehicles than I think a lot of people sort of really realised. And that's because of the ZEV mandate was going to be, was really going to be sitting alongside it. 
I don't want to underplay the the role it was that the internal combustion engine phase out uh, announcement really played, but I think in terms of driving up the sales of electric vehicles and driving down emissions, the ZEB mandate is really doing the heavy lifting. Ralph Palmer from Clean Mobility Advocates Transport and Environment has this to say about the ZEB issue. The ZEB mandate is, I think, a very positive step. It's been a very long overdue step. I mean, it's we've been waiting waiting for this for. For a number of months, um, basically, it's, it was sat on Rishi Sunak's desk, we think, from July. Um, so it had been quite a long wait for it to actually kind of get, get from uh, get from there to actually being announced. Um, so, you know, it is a very positive step. It's just obviously coming against this very poor backdrop of the Prime Minister's announcement to um, push back the, the ban on petrol and diesel sales. The thing the thing with that, that decision to push back the ban on petrol and diesel sales is that from a very practical emissions perspective, it likely won't have that much impact because all all non-zero emission vehicle sales, so petrol, diesel, hybrid and plug-in hybrids, they'll still be regulated in the same way as previously proposed. As you said, the, the Z mandate and the, the kind of corresponding regulation on non-zero emission vehicles hasn't actually changed from what they proposed previously. So the kind of same emission standards kind of apply. I also asked Johan whether the cancellation of HS2's second leg was a bit like the ICE ban delay, a bad market signal that could have bad repercussions. Absolutely. I think when it comes to, uh, you need to look at a sort of transport policy holistically. So we need to deploy technologies to decarbonise what we're doing. So deploy, deploy the electric vehicles instead of a petrol or diesel car. But we also need to try and shift um, journeys onto more sustainable forms of transport. So we need to get more people to go on, uh, to, to travel by bus. We need to get more people to travel by active travel means, so walking and cycling, and by trains as well. So whatever you think of the, the merits or, or drawbacks of, of HS2 specifically, we clearly need to get people onto trains and out of vehicles. Um, and it really does, it, it just shows that we haven't done a good enough job of maintaining a really high quality train system that is uh, reliable and that people feel that they can trust so that they can make their commutes there, they can go on holiday by a train and not have to just rely on on cars. So I think it is, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is indicative of us not having done a good enough job on decarbonising transport and shifting people onto more sustainable modes of transport. As I suggested earlier in the show, Britain then, tis a silly place. Its achievements so far in decarbonising its economy cannot be understated. Uh, but there is clearly a great deal of potential being squandered across the board. Would things change under different leadership? A general election looms large, with the Labour Party polling massively ahead of the Conservatives. Uh, When a vote will be called is anybody's guess, but if the opposition of 13 years were to get in, what can we predict? Those onshore planning rules, which still maintain some of the problematic elements that might turn developers off local projects, would apparently be scrapped. New oil and gas licences would not be issued, although existing exploration would seemingly be allowed to continue. Leader Keir Starmer has also said he would reinstate the 2030 ICE sales ban, insisting that's what businesses have been planning for. And what about HS2? Well, Labour says it cannot commit to building the Manchester leg of the project after the government took a wrecking ball to the finances, quote-unquote. Bad news for clean transport fans then, as it looks like a change of government will still keep Britain in the Victorian age when it comes to rail travel. Thanks for joining me for today's episode of The Jolt and for listening along this week. Uh, We've tested this new format and will now take next week to fine-tune everything before coming back to you 
on the 16th of October for regular shows, three times a week. The Jolt is a subscriber-only offering from Foresight, so please do consider joining us. I can guarantee that you will not regret it. This is all new for us at Foresight too, so that's why we'd love to get your feedback on this format. What you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to see in future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. So use the links in the show notes to get in touch. In the meantime, if this edition has whetted your appetite for more great British energy transition stories, check out one of the latest episodes of What Matters that charts the UK's journey towards net zero. Plus keep a lookout for the next episode of The Policy Dispatch, where I was lucky enough to chat with Wales's climate minister. My thanks to everyone at Foresight for making the job possible, and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt. Thank you.